The Bro Show presents Doc Doc Goose, an examination of the world of sports science, medicine, and athlete management with Dr. Alice McNamara, Dr. Rod Siegel, and Bill Tate. Well, welcome back to the Bro Show studios for a very special episode of Doc 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 Goose. We'll get to that in a moment. But first of all, welcome to our usual esteemed colleagues here, uh, Rod. Alice, welcome, Docs. How are we? Yeah, good day, Bill. Good day, good day. Going well, thanks, guys. How Ep- are you, Goose? Yeah, yeah, not too bad. Episode number two in isolation here. We've got we've got two on the line, so hopefully technology holds out for us. Um, but you know, obviously, since the last episode here in Melbourne, things are really ratcheted down. Alice, you've been working pretty hard in the screening uh, environment here, taking um, some of the testing at uh, Southland and and. Lots what of not? Tests, yeah. Lots and lots of tests. How's it been going? Oh, everyone knows someone now who's everyone's a close contact. We'll say that. Yeah, we but know. They're someone. all coming in for getting. <laughs> we, we know a few people actually. Yeah, we do. Yeah, it's a but bit they're all scary. coming in too early, so we just need to keep people home yeah. while they wait for their symptoms to come on. Anyway, yeah. we will get there. Melbourne will get there. How are you, Rocket? Yep, going well. Just in the bedroom studios as per last time. So you've yeah, been growing in the stuff last time. You have grown some serious facial hairs. Uh, and I hadn't didn't know you had it in you. Neither <laughs> did I, to be honest. Uh, uh, um, yeah, I've I've embraced full ISO. Yeah, clearly. my wife doesn't like it, but doesn't she? Yeah. Oh, no. Gina, gee whiz, there you go. Well, we have a very exciting and much anticipated episode today. Um, we're here to talk about a, a study. I know that doesn't always sound interesting to, to a lot of people, but this is, is very relevant to our audience, very relevant. Um, it's around injuries in rowing, injuries and illnesses in rowing. Um, and um, we're, we have a, a, a very esteemed colleague with us today, uh, it's Dr. Larry Treese. I'll introduce her in a moment, but just quickly for her background, Larry um, is a um, exercise and sport, sport and exercise physician specialist. She's been in the field for more than 10 years. Many rowing people around the traps will know Larry as the chief medical officer with Rowing Australia through the Rio Olympic Games, but she also worked as one of the Australian team doctors for a number of years before that, most particularly leading into the London Olympic Games. But she also worked in the Sochi Winter Olympic Games, the Beijing Paralympics, um, and the 2012 Youth Olympic Games. So she's had a, an enormous amount of experience in the Olympic field. I will say, at a personal level, she was the doctor that that um, saved us in 2012 when we really needed a lot of help with the, that women's pair with an injury um, issue. We might touch on a little bit of that at one point through the episode today. And, and she she's was, the reason that I'm doing sports medicine, probably, because she was my doctor as I was going through my rowing career. And she's been your mentor, is the reality as well. She still is, and sorry, way. Larry, you're probably going to keep being my mentor. Um, she's <laughs> currently... Why don't you guys fire out? <laughs> she's currently working she in, mentor, in, uh, in Canberra. Um, and she um, has had roles up there, also including uh, roles with the uh, with ASADA, with the um, Sports and Drug Administrative um, advisory committee, I should say, um, amongst many, many other things. And it's our great pleasure to welcome Dr. Treese to the Bro Show. Welcome, Dr. Treese. Listen to the fans. How are you, Larry? Yeah, really well, thank you. It's a big intro for the second goose for the show, but um, it is great to be here. And I'm looking forward to catching up with some great rowing people and friends and talking rowing injury and illness. 
Yeah. Well, we, I know it's it's a big intro, Larry, but but we love you, and you know that you know that um, we go a, a long way back. And this is a very important episode, I think, and one that I think uh, there's there's so much to cover here. It's a bit daunting. Uh, it's one that we've been really excited to get on with. Um, and so, without further ado, we will get on with the uh, the discussion on the study. So before we get going, Larry, you're quite good friends with my boss. Is that right? Uh, possibly, yes. And I think she was staying at your house in Canberra a few months ago. Possibly, yes. yes. And I think you'd you'd come home probably from a really fast pace, annoyingly fast pace walk that you like to do. Um, and she was on the phone, and she was talking like in a really stern tone to somebody on the phone. And she hung up the call, and you said, "Oh, who are you talking to, Rocket?" <laughs> Why, why did you why did you just assume that when your friend was talking to a stern in a stern tone to somebody that she'd automatically be talking to me it must have been a very intellectual sounding conversation and the person at the other end must have been a proper doctor with a phd <laughs> good save. oh yes good save well done uh, well i know who she was talking to it was somebody way 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 more important than me that she was talking in a stern tone to so yeah, oh. i just wanted to get that out of the way how is cobra well good save well done <laughs> uh very good all right larry um we got to get on with this so i'll throw to you after that um talk us through the study and how you got to this point I think the most important thing to talk about first is the other great rowing clinicians that were involved in the study. Uh, so there's five of us who actually wrote the paper together, and that includes myself and Kelly Wilkie, who some of the listeners will be familiar with. She was the lead physio for Rowing Australia in the Rio Olympic cycle. And along with the two of us, uh, we had Greg Lovell, who's a very esteemed uh, sports and exercise physician who looked after rowing at two Olympic Games. Uh, we had Michael Drew, Mick Drew, who has worked in rowing as a physiotherapist, but also really supported us in the statistical analysis of the paper. Uh, so I'll be focused tonight on the clinical side of things, uh, Rocket I'm taking any statistical questions on notice and uh, I'll come back to you about those. And then uh, the person who sits last on the paper, which is a very esteemed position for those of you familiar with academia, is Ivan Hooper. And Hoops was the physio that and the person that actually got me involved in rowing to start with all the way back in 2007. We had a conversation about the sport and how great he thought it was. And he's also the person that established this data set, so started collecting uh, the injury and illness incidents amongst the rowers he was looking after. And he sits there uh, in the professorial position, I suppose. Um, and it's a great recognition of all the work he's done in the sports medicine space for Rowing Australia. The professor. There you go. That was a professorial space. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think we'll keep it simple in terms of the study, what did we do and why. So for those people who have been an athlete in the Rowing Australia team, you'd know that we collect uh, records of any injury or illness that happens that costs training time. And so we defined our injuries and illness as uh, anything that cost more than 24 hours of training time. So we weren't focused on those things that might result in the loss of a session, but we were focused on 24 hours of missed training time. And 
Ivan started that actually before um, the data that we've included in the paper in 2007 and it was run for a pilot program before the 2008 Beijing Olympics. From that yeah, time, I remember that actually. He was always collecting data, injury data, from as yeah. long as I can remember. It's a wealth of knowledge, Larry. Good work. <laughs> yeah, there's so that the, any athlete that presents uh, with an injury or illness that would remove them from on-water training for a period of 24 hours, that was actually recorded in a very simple spreadsheet. Uh, and over the years, that spreadsheet grew in terms of the data that it captured. And we consistently did that every time the athletes were selected into the national team for the year. So at whatever point the selection trials uh, were held from that point forward, we kept a record of any injury and illness in any of the athletes in the senior team. And we kept that going across two Olympiads. So for the London games and also then right through to Rio, those involved more on the sports medicine side would know that AMS, the athlete management system, the electronic medical file came in, uh, in 2013, it was introduced and we actually ran a parallel program. So while we had all the data and put all the data in AMS uh, to maintain the athlete health record, we actually still compiled the spreadsheet. So we were really consistent in the data collection across the two years and the paper is just what we found. It doesn't really delve into why we think things happened, although clinically we've got lots of ideas about that. But the, this is just the foundation paper. It says if you have a group of rowers, and you're going to look after them for an Olympiad, what sorts of things might you encounter? What are important things because they either happen often or they cost a lot of training time? Yeah, wow. So it, it really was, you know, I guess in layman's terms, the, this, the report, which we'll, pub, we'll put a link to and, and publish on our various socials and, and uh, whatnot with the, with the podcast, it's an an observation of of all of that information rather than drawing direct um, causes it, it's looking at a, I suppose yeah like the things that that happen at the same time that I guess might lead you to consider some causes behind it yeah I think if we were going to get really sciencey we'd talk about the Van Mecklen injury prevention model who's a, a very famous scientist who published uh, a flow chart or four steps to understanding injury and preventing injury. And the first step is actually to establish what your problem is. And so this paper is helping to establish what the problems are in rowing. So what's that, Van Mecklen? It know. is, yep, injury prevention. Good. Rocket did know a lot about that. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> but I do have to say... That, to have that much amount of data consistently collected over that period of time is so impressive that it's very hard to do that. Mm. Yeah. And did, it was a meticulous process, wasn't it, Larry? You know, I remember as being a coach, you know, in and around that, that a lot of time was put into the, the follow-up to make sure that data was clean. We actually had a triple checking method. So uh, when we had the sports med sports science coordinator, which was Ivan in the uh, London Olympiad and I took that role in the Rio Olympiad, um, athletes were obliged to report an injury. Coaches liaised with the triple SM coordinator to provide information about which athletes were and were not training because of injury and illness. 
And the doctors and physios that were seeing those athletes for diagnosis and treatment were also reporting. So we actually had three ways of capturing the same data. Uh, and we also had a really diligent process of following up exactly when the athlete did transition from not being on the water at all to being on modified training. And then when they resumed full training. So we've actually got high confidence in the data that we've collected and it was collected at the time of injury. So it's considered to be a prospective study, mm-hmm. even though we looked at the data uh, after the end of the Rio Olympiad so that we looked at it retrospectively, but it was collected prospectively. So we're pretty confident in what we saw when it comes to the actual numbers of injuries and illness. It's really important, isn't it, in smaller sports like rowing that doesn't have a lot of, I mean, there's funding in rowing, but it's not a professional sport. It's not like um, football or um, well, football of any code, really, soccer, AFL, rugby. It doesn't have a lot of um, time in it as far as clinicians go. So this is a really, really groundbreaking kind of data set, really, of eight years of consistent collection in, in the sport of rowing. And I think it will probably be referred to um, for clinicians all over the world looking at what, you know, how they're going to prevent injury and manage injury going forward. Yeah. And I think, you know, and we'll talk about this when we get to the results and the discussion, but I think intuitively some of the things that are that have that have picked up in the study make a lot of sense and probably many people in rowing would identify with that naturally, but there are some interesting curiosities that pop up that, that as you always do when you actually clinically look at things that, that maybe show that there's some assumptions that we've worked on over time that, that you know are important to challenge and consider. So Larry, um, in terms of the athlete days um, lost, I, I guess that's going to be a really big question um, around how, how you've defined it. I think you've explained that pretty pretty clearly that, um, you know, we, we all understand that there's, um, you know, a day lost isn't, isn't um, a binary thing necessarily because you can do other things sometimes and, and that's hard to account for. You know, you might... Um, you might have planned to do a 24k row and you might have only done a 10k row plus a, a watt bike or something like that as top up um, but you've you've been pretty explicit to define what what is counted as a full training day and what is a modified training day or a no training day yeah so the data that we're talking about and that we analyzed was strictly to do with on water training so even athlete and we looked or uh, even though within our record keeping uh, in the team and, and organisation, we looked at modified and no training, we collected uh, or we included together uh, those athletes that were not doing any training and were doing modified training. So this data refers to an athlete that had their planned water session changed due to an injury or illness um, for more than 24 hours. So a good example is an athlete comes in and they're, they're uh, sick or unwell. So they might have a, an illness that lasts for three days and during that three-day period, they were only rowing at 50% uh, of what the coach prescribed. So we'd consider that to be three days of modified on-water training and that represented by three athlete days in the data set. And um, I was when I was reading the paper, I, I think I interpreted this correctly, so you, you started your data collection for the season on the day post-selection trials and then you finished your data collection at the final day of the Olympics or the World Championships, depending on which year it was. Is that correct? Yeah, Mac, it's a really important point. So this um, paper refers to the data that was collected when athletes were selected to the team. So it represents our international, international season. Roles, yeah. 
and people familiar with rowing in Australia would know that we have a domestic season and international season and then we have a, a short period usually of downtime where we're, we're not monitoring as closely the injury and illness period. We do have that data uh, set where we've got the domestic season as well, but we weren't as confident in that data set mm, because yeah. athletes are training in different environments. Um, there's uh, slightly less focus on completing every session in some environments. So we chose to only use the international season data. Yeah, that makes the data much more clean. Uh, and the other thing about athlete days lost was what about when there was an injury that maybe halted an athlete's progression in that season? So if there was um, someone who needed to exit the team for surgical reasons or um, yeah, had a catastrophic injury or illness, um, how, how did you calculate athlete days lost there? So we actually had 10 athletes that were unable to com uh, complete the season that they were selected for. And then we included the athlete days through to the final day of the World Championships or the Olympics. So um, if it was deemed that they would not be fit to return to rowing in that season, we included all the days that they missed right through till the end of the season. Yeah, significant. Yeah, it's very disruptive, I, I guess, and, and really sad for the individual cases. I guess... Then it comes down there. I wanted to ask about the, the way you classified particular injuries um, because having how many clinicians did you have over that time that were collecting data? I think we had maybe eight or you're testing me, Mac, eight or nine doctors and maybe up to 15 physios in that time. Um, so that's looking at people that worked with crews in the domestic environment where they were preparing, so at the state institutes and academies, uh, or travelled with the team overseas. Um, obviously really important to make the distinction uh, between the setup and training environment that athletes had in the London and Rio Olympiads, which is what this paper reflects, and the current arrangement of the National Training Centres here in Australia. So mm. very different environment and uh, different circumstances. So just have to cast our mind back then, uh, back to that Rio Olympiad. Because of the number of people uh, that were involved in the athlete care, I think we're heading towards discussing uh, the orchard system of classification of injuries and why we might have chosen to look at body region area rather than more specific diagnosis. Yeah, well, I think because uh, you had so much inter-observer um, reliability, you needed to account for different clinicians. Is that correct? Yeah, and a great example is people with low back pain, very common in rowing, as we'll talk about where if you're asked to name a structure within mm. the spine that might be the cause of that pain, that's a, a challenging thing to do. Um, different people interpret different clinical signs differently. So Not always by, imaged. No. Yeah, it may require imaging. So to actually focus on saying, well, it's the lumbar region and there's pain in the lumbar region and therefore we'll call it a lumbar region injury mm. just removes that difference uh, in practitioners. And obviously in the future, it'd be fascinating to do a study on a group of rowers where we were able to follow them closely and maybe differentiate the different structures, particularly within the lumbar spine. Um, but that's not this first step in, uh, in injury prevention, which is starting to understand the problem. Larry, one of the things that's really impressive about this study is that, as you mentioned, it was essentially done before we could readily use a lot of these online monitoring platforms um, that are now every day, um, you know, it, it, any punter basically can monitor themselves in all sorts of ways very readily now. And I know this is a very speculative question, but um, 
in terms of study design, if you were going to go back to 2008 or, or that even that cycle and start again with everything we had now, would you try and look at um, the difference between, um, you know, just pure athlete days lost versus, you know, the, the difference in the load that the, that the, the athlete might be sustaining um, as a result? You know, the drop in load essentially that, or drop in signal that the athlete might have taken? It, that would absolutely be the next step to take uh, and looking forward to be able to say uh, looking at different loads and how they relate to different injuries would be fascinating and I, I think would also be possible in rowing. Um, obviously, looking all the way back to 2008, uh, we didn't really look at athletes in that way in terms of the, the load and prescription of load and monitoring of load. There's so many tools that are available to do that now. That would be a really world. exciting addition to collaborate uh, injury and illness data and I think illness for me in particular with uh, with load, and I know that has been done in small crews in well-resourced environments, but it, it um, wasn't possible as part of the paper. Mm. And that was actually one of the challenges through what was a really extensive review process for the paper was asking why didn't we have, why were we using athlete days? Why weren't we using uh, training load? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the thing. You've got to remember it's 12 years ago and yeah. it's, you know, We've only got our act together, you know, in terms of being able to see and measure load easily in the last, you know, six years realistically. Yeah, Larry, if I remember right, I think we were in Lucerne one year, it might have been 2015, and we were looking through some of the, the data from an injury and illness point of view and looking back at through some of the training load data that we'd captured for that season. We had some heart rate variability data for some athletes as well that we were looking through and, and trying to see if there was a bit of a link there. But I think at that time we probably just didn't have enough data to make any real inferences so um yeah definitely interesting it would have been cool but yeah at the time obviously that a lot of that stuff wasn't available uh, and i think hopefully it's what we're going all not necessarily we as in the collective <laughs> author group but what we might see going forward in, in the sports medicine space in rowing would be pretty exciting mm. anything else uh, larry or particularly mac and and rocket on the study design that you want to cover before we jump into the results here? Not for me. Makes sense to me. Yeah, no, I think it's just an exceptional piece of work. It's just so so much information that's actually put down on paper. And what you were saying before, Bill, is that some of this injury knowledge is inherent in rowing coaches. Like, you know, if someone has chest wall pain, well, that might be a long injury. Like inherently a coach knows that. Mm. But it doesn't get written down very well often. Um, and sometimes documenting it is very difficult and um, quantifying it's really difficult. So it's exceptional. All right, Larry, on to the results. Um, first of all, probably it, it would be worth saying, you know, who were the athletes that were actually in the study? Not their names, but their demographic. <laughs> I, I think if your audience knows their rowers, then most people will be able to name at least a few out. people in the study. Um, <laughs> however, we'll talk more broadly. So in the eight years or the two Olympic cycles, there are 153 individual athletes selected to the ART or Australian rowing team. And we followed them for 48,611 athlete days. Oh so it's a long time. It is a uh, lot things, of data. Yeah, it is a lot of data. Um, uh, in Within that group, we looked at the number of athletes that uh, were represented on one team and then uh, two teams, three teams, four teams. And the, the two things that I'll just touch on is that 
40% of the cohort were only in one team and 10% of the cohort, oh, sorry, 10 athletes, which is 6% of the cohort, were in six or more teams uh, across the two Olympiads. So mm-hmm. uh, Max already pointed out that in a sport where you develop proficiency and experience is important, how much benefit could we have by swaying that curve towards uh, having more re- uh, athletes represent well, in actual fact, it was a core pillar of the strategy of the Australian rowing team from the 2012 review was to maximise the number of returned athletes into 2016. Mm. And and the reality is, you know, a lot of the medals in 2016 were driven by those athletes. Mm. Yeah, well, the drop-off was surprising to me. Um, yeah, you definitely need to have people that have at least gone to one Olympic Games or prepared for one Olympics before they um, have an experienced one the second time around. I mean, some people are, have a good first Olympic cycle, but a lot of rowers, it takes a couple of years to, to get skills well, up. It and does. And, and efficiency. It's probably more in Australia and some of the other smaller countries that that's a factor. Some of the bigger countries do get away with having, you know, champions in their first cycle and and um, and being able to churn through athletes a little bit more but certainly the Australian philosophy on athlete development has been based around getting two, three, four Olympics, five maybe mm-hmm. <laughs> type characters um, into them and, th- and that's been historically where the results have been driven from. So it's, it's really critical to see what that number is and obviously injury and illness play a big part in retaining athletes. Yeah, oh, definitely. If you had a bad back, um, I don't know if, how you'd go through six years of Oh, well, actually, Drew. Astro. Astro. <laughs> it is a limitation also in the studies that we didn't look at athletes that didn't return the following year because of injury and illness. So mm-hmm. while we followed those athletes, if they were deselected or withdrawn from the team because of injury and illness for that, that particular season, if that injury and illness still precluded them from participating the subsequent year, we didn't look at that. So mm. um, we haven't captured maybe some of those really significant injuries that are career ending in a way that reflects uh, into the seasons beyond the season that that athlete was last selected for. Yeah, it's a really important point, but let's not talk about the limitations before the wonderful results. Mm. <laughs> uh, thanks, Matt. So um, we, we might divide it up, Larry, if, if that's okay, into illness and injury and start with injury, I think, um, and then we'll have get your results and we might have a bit of a chin wag around that and then, and then do the same with illness. Sounds like a great plan and I love putting illness on the same platform at the same height as injury. And I think often we say injury and illness and I feel like illness doesn't get as much airtime as it needs. So I'd love to divide them up and have a chance to focus on that a little bit later. If we look across the eight years, just in total, before we do divide injury and illness up, uh, we lost 9% of the available athlete days across the two Olympiads to injury and illness. And I've got a question for you, Bill. Where do you feel like that sits as a coach? Yeah. If you're planning your training, is that in the ballpark for success? Oh, when when I first read that, I was like, I thought, no surprise. Like that, that to me is right in the sweet spot. I think I know we always like there's when I when I was a younger coach, um, someone threw up a statistic at us of ninety four percent completed. Now I have no idea what the backing of that is, but that was always in my mind. I think that the reality is when you're in a, in a sport where you are on the wire the whole time with with training load and you have to be we can be we can be safe and they just they'll be 
all healthy all the time and, and relatively injury free, but they just won't be very good. Um, when you're on the wire, there's going to be hiccups. And I think um, I would have thought 90% most, most campaigns you'd take that, I would have thought. Well, I th- I'm surprised by that. Um, well, when I read that 9% of athlete days were lost, I thought that was a big number. Because as an athlete, you would if you told me one out of every 10 days, I wouldn't be training. I think that's that's actually quite a lot. But I remember Noel Donaldson threw that number out at me when I was a younger athlete. He said if we get through 90% of the program, he'd be happy. Yeah, and I think to me that means 90% done exactly as you, you know, right on the bit as to how you thought you were going to do it and getting it, you know, of with all the intent. Program. Yeah, exactly, yeah. of an ambitious program, exactly. So, you know, Larry, t- t- to be honest, you know, I – I wasn't surprised. I think it's probably about about what I expected. And I was probably somewhere in the middle of you two thinking pretty much exactly the same thing. A, yeah, that probably seems about right. And B, geez, that is actually quite a bit. Mm. But, you know, in working with you, Bill, over the years, we used to plan essentially the absolute most that we ever would have hoped that they would have gotten through knowing that you know realistically we're not going to get through all of this because it might be fatigue it might be illness it might be injury but um yeah yeah and look and i think that the the difficulty larry i reckon around it sometimes is that i found with with that approach where i feel like i was relatively i tried to be relatively um unaffected when that sort of thing got thrown up because once you've been through a number of campaigns, you sort of realise, you know, missing some time here isn't the end of the world. There's always another way sort of thing that you've got to explore. But often when you then had to back off with athletes, say, we're going to do a bit less because we're worried, that, that's where they started to freak out because they were, um, they were thinking they've been drilled their whole careers that they've got to do everything. So one of the interesting things is getting to senior athletes where they're actually happy to accept that maybe some things just don't get done and that's okay and they can let it go and not let it affect their confidence. So, yeah, I think that's where the 90% can be an issue. And we used to almost frame it up to them like that by by the end. You know, it's like this is the plan and chances are we're not going to do all this but this is going to be the maximum of what you're ever going to do. Well, all of your clinicians that have written the paper, Larry, were working with athletes in and in and out of these injuries. So you were inherent, you were very involved to a minute level with everyone's injuries, and that involves the physical and the management state through it, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think actually that's one point I'd make is that I think it makes a massive difference to the success of a campaign where that nine percent happens. Yeah. So it's maybe not a big deal to lose 9% in certain parts of the international season or a campaign's preparation, but then there's a couple of key times where to lose that time uh, really influences the outcome. Uh, and I think it also depends on what the injury is that influences that time sort of makes sense. But there's a great paper by a rowing clinician, uh, Fiona Wilson, who's based in Ireland, that shows that if you're injured, you actually can do more volume. So physiologically, you mm. might have not, you might have completed more than 91% uh, of the prescribed training. Mm. It just wasn't the on-water training. So there's yeah. lots of variables there. It's just a an interesting ballpark that might help some athletes to understand okay so this is over an eight-year cycle this is roughly how much we expect we're going to miss and we're going to build that into the program to be able to be flexible and accommodate for that and the flip side is you don't want to waste your nine percent on crappy little things you could manage around and avoid 
So, you know, save your save 9% for the things that are unavoidable or happen because you're, on, you're pushing the, the bleeding edge, basically. Yeah, and I certainly, I don't think any of the clinicians on the paper would advocate for uh, 100% availability because I think that would represent not doing enough of the work. Mm. Yeah. yeah, really good Utopia point. that doesn't exist. Um, so then so maybe the big findings. Shall we get to the meaty stuff? Yeah, let's do it. So I, I don't think there's many rowers out there, regardless of whether they're medical or not, that would be surprised to hear that the the three things we found that were really important in terms of lost time was chest wall pain, lumbar spine pain, and then illness was actually part of that top three mix. So they're pretty standard things for a rower. I was explaining to someone the other day uh, who's coming up through sports med that rowing's a great sport to work with. There's really only three things that go wrong. <laughs> Rowers get sick, they get sore backs, they get sore ribs. And then from time to time, uh, they also have intersection syndrome or problems of the wrist. And that was actually one of the things that I found really interesting from the paper was if you'd asked me before we'd analysed the statistics, I would have said intersection syndrome uh, would have been more prominent in our findings. Mm. Uh, but I think that's a great example of where significant cases stand out to you and mm. therefore you feel that it's more important than Yeah, I think you had 4%. For, uh, yeah. Yeah, 0.5% of athlete days lost, which is not much, 0.5%. But I've got a lot of risk injuries in rowing. I don't know how how you categorise this, but I, I feel like if you've if you're a rower and you've got lumbar back pain – Everyone understands that. If you've got a rib, a chest wall thing, everyone understands that. But this wrist thing just seems like this frustrating, crappy little nothing injury that just gets in the way of everything, stops you from doing things all together. But it's it's not really a badge of honour almost injury like um, the backs are. I know, I know that sounds silly, but in my mind, I think that might be why um, they stand out because they just seem to be, come on, can't this, this tendons just get better? Yeah. The other interesting, annoying one that I, I – it was a higher number than I thought was the knee pain. I don't ever think rowers yeah. get knee pain, but I remember a particular season where myself and my doubles partner, we both had a knee injury at the same time. Yeah. And it was very difficult to cross-train. And I think when you've got rib pain, you can ride a bike, but when you've got knee pain, you can't ride a bike. And well, we might talk about the knee pain as well, but um, we should start with the top, Larry. So uh, I think – Chest wall pain obviously represents a spectrum of things and it's it's good to recognise when we were talking before about choosing a body area that when we think about chest wall pain, most people jump straight to the rib and there's a, a high proportion of the chest wall pain injuries here are ribs, but it also includes all the non-rib causes of chest pain. So because we didn't differentiate within the lumbar spine, uh, we haven't differentiated for the chest wall, but for people who are interested in further details, details about the rib injuries in particular in the Australian rowing team. Rachel Harris, who's a fabulous sports physician from Perth, wrote a paper as part of her fellowship on the Australian experience of rib injuries in the Rio Olympiad. So that might also be another reference for people to go to if they're looking for more detail about the bony side of things, yeah, which one, is the more troublesome side of things. The yeah. other thing I'd say about chest wall pain is it's more common in our female athletes. And uh, we don't delve down in the paper as to why that might be, but Rachel's got some great insights in her paper, which is published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine as well, uh, about why that might be. So that's a great resource for that particular injury. Oh, we'll have to chuck a link to that on the, on the Facebook page mm. as well. Um, and then if we look 
at the other main injury, so lumbar back pain. Uh, it also draws our attention to male rowers because uh, males were twice as likely to have low back pain as female athletes. Uh, and so mm. we're really looking at a gender difference there in, in injury experience across the eight years. So I know, Larry, that you it, it's hard to speculate and, and these are they're not it's not a causative um, link here. Um, but do you have any thoughts on on why um, you saw a, a higher predominance in, in our female athletes of chest wall and, and more lumbar in male athletes? We were actually pushed by one of the reviewers to give our clinical thoughts in particular about the, the low back pain findings in, in terms of the gender difference. And we've, uh, we obviously have our own ideas clinically. I would say there's a big difference in flexibility between male and female athletes, and that's definitely or has the potential to be a contributing cause um, to males with low back pain. And also, could that be that that same flexibility? Could that also be a potential cause in females of the chest wall, and that they are able to get themselves into a you know, stretched positions where they're less, there's less potential protection for um, the ribcage. Now, I know it's super speculative, but in my mind, that's always been one of the reasons I've always felt like it, it could be more prevalent in female rowers. You have to read Rachel's paper. Huh? That's a great answer. Um, I haven't ever thought of that, Bill, to be honest. I'd say maybe potentially less control around the shoulder, which is how you transfer force from uh, the oar in through into the trunk so through the rib cage mm. um, and so less control whether that's represented by increased flexibility as in a more bendy stretchy ligament person or whether that's a less muscular uh, less strong upper body which yeah. we know females often have I, uh, even in rowing that that might actually be the link there to yeah. an increase in chest wall pain I'd be thinking both that that was my always my working hypothesis. And I, I guess with with the male rowers, like the the reality is that a, a heavyweight male, for instance, is going to put twice as much force through their lumbar spine um, when they're levering against the the weight of the handle as a as a a lightweight female rower. Like uh, they're the two extremes of ends of the spectrum. You know, there's the significant weight difference. Um, and I guess we should, it's still all the same tissue, you know, that the, the spine is still made up of the same type of thing. It's not like um, they're able to upgrade their um, relative materials that they're making their lumbar discs out of. It's all made out of the same material. So maybe that, you know, is logical given the loading differences, I suppose. It's complex. It's definitely complex. Very complex, yeah. With um, costovertebral pain, Larry, did, did that fall into chest wall or oh, there's a category for thoracic pain? Mm. Uh, so costovertebral pain, MAC is a really tricky one. So for non-medical people, that's where the rib joins the thoracic spine, the part of the spine um, where the thorax is or the chest wall and we differentiated chest wall pain was um, medial to the medial border of the scapula so if you think about where the shoulder blades sit on the chest wall mm. chest wall is from the shoulder blades round to the front and then mm. the bit between the shoulder blades is thoracic spine wow so very very medial rib fractures fall into thoracic uh, unless they were diagnosed as rib fractures in which case they were 
coded as a rib fracture mm. and therefore they'd be in chest wall pain. Mm. It's a bit tricky. Very tricky, very tricky. Fortunately, as a group of uh, clinicians working in this environment, we had the opportunity to meet every year and we would talk about things like definition of injury, mm. um, the sports medicine coordinator role, part of uh, that was coding each injury. And so we'd use all the available resources that we had to decide the most appropriate code for the mm. injury. So if the athletes had imaging, we would definitely use that to guide the coding system. So while it sounds um, very broad when we talk about chest wall actually what we were doing in the clinical environment where we were collecting this data was very, very specific because as one of my favourite things to say is without a diagnosis, you can't have a prognosis. Mm. And you'd know there's a huge difference in prognosis between uh, a, a chest wall muscle strain and a rib fracture. So yeah. we were really focused as clinicians on finding out what the, the answer was, what the diagnosis was. And that, so that's been captured as part of the coding process. So mm. the data that sits behind the study is actually pretty detailed. Yeah, no, it, it, it's great. exceptional. And I think... Oh, those that were in, involved at, in, during rowing during this time will remember that there has been a, a chest wall pathway created, um, which was mainly by this group of researchers actually, uh, whereby there was time allocated for a diagnosis and um, to have a look at the trajectory of illness, at trajectory of the injury. So firstly, to prevent extra athlete days lost. Um, with it progressing from a bone st um, stress injury to a fracture, but secondly, so that you could get an accurate diagnosis. And I, I think. Do you want to just explain that though, just quickly, in terms of w what you specifically mean? You're talking about once there was a a signal that there might be an injury, there was a five day break, and then is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I will throw to Larry, but the you know an injury, an overuse injury usually doesn't happen on day one. Usually, it's because there's a build-up of load on a particular structure that's not designed to take that load in that particular way, or it hasn't been primed to take that load over a period of time. So, when there is a warning sign, you can prevent further injury. And so, I might throw to Larry, in your experience with rollers and chest wall pain, what was your experience with working with this group? So obviously the um, London cycle was when I came into the senior team first in 2012, um, having worked with a couple of the junior teams. And there was already this, uh, we call it the chest ball pain protocol in place when I became involved in the sport. And it's actually a really nice example of that Van Mecklen injury prevention concept where um, the data was analysed, what's the least amount of days we've lost with an athlete that presents with pain in the chest wall and what's the most that we've lost or what's the mean or the average amount of days that we lose if we know that it's a bony problem versus a non-bony problem and that was found that at no athlete had returned to full-on water training at less than five days when they presented with pain in the chest wall. So the logical conclusion was well why don't we just take all athletes off the water for five days That'll allow small things to settle and they'll settle quickly and the athlete will be able to resume training. But it'll also allow bigger problems to start settling rather than get worse. And the other part of the protocol was that at that stage, early in the London cycle, so just after Beijing, the most common diagnostic investigation for chest wall pain was a bone scan. 
and a bone yeah. scan involves significant radiation. Mm. So Thankfully by being able to delineate patients that or athletes that settled quickly with chest wall pain, they didn't need a scan, but those that didn't settle after five days were more likely to have a rib problem and therefore really we could justify that radiation exposure to step that athlete to an investigation. So two things there. One was mm. using the information that was collected to help minimise uh, time lost in the future with a with a plan or a protocol and two, trying to minimise or optimise the health of the athlete through the minimisation of radiation exposure. Mm. And Larry, at a really practical level, how did you go getting that across the line with the coaching group? Uh, that actually happened before I came on board, Rod, so the the process was being set up. Um, I think the rowing coaches in my experience as a group are very interested in data. They're, they're keen to understand and to learn. And so with people that they recognise have worked in the sport, understand the sport, want to work with the coach to have a better outcome in the sport, um, they're very open to understanding why would you suggest that and having data actually speaks to a rowing coach. And so this process that has formed the basis of the paper was actually also done to allow really accurate communication. And, you know, I think that this is a classic example where any decision is better than no decision. And I always I, – I think that there's some security in knowing, right, rib, uh, no one wants it, but I know what it is. It's five days and that it, that's mm. what it is. So you, you – you instantly overlay it and it was interesting Larry came and presented this to all of our sport coaches at all of our sport program coaches at VIS last year and a number of our um, coaches from other sports sort of um, made the comment to me subsequently around how beneficial that must have been to just know you knew what it was as soon as something appeared it's not ideal but you knew it was five days to start with and and there's some there's some comfort and confidence in just being able to make a plan around that. And it wasn't. And as Larry said before, we had so many built-in strategies of what you could do off the water, uh, you know, potentially to the point where, you know, you might actually physiologically get a greater stimulus than you might had have gotten just through your normal training. So we had those things ready to go at all times that so that athletes didn't feel like, you know, they were really going to go backwards, that, you know, they were straight back into what bike sessions and the like. Larry, um, all these things are overuse injuries, um, you know, you, unique to a sport like rowing that it's that there's 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 basically only overuse um, injuries as uh, that that crop up at the top of that list. So we actually looked at uh, we classified the injuries as well as part of the data collection. So we looked at uh, and labelled injuries as being either acute or new onset, rapid onset, or overuse injuries, and then we actually also looked at whether those overuse injuries were the first time an athlete had had that particular injury or whether it was a recurrence of that same injury after the injury had resolved previously. And for overuse injuries, they represented 83% of what we looked at in the paper. Mm. So a really significant amount. Yeah. Which um, there's another interesting cohort of acute injuries, which I was really surprised at, Larry, and that might have been some trauma. Yeah, so one of the things we found was that in the acute injury, so the other um, 17% roughly, uh, a third of those were cycling injuries mm-hmm. directly resulting from road cycling. <laughs> Rowers on bikes. Yeah, it's so funny though because, <laughs> you know, ring, we, always, <laughs> yeah, we always say, you know, we try and get a lot of volume up on the bike to avoid getting back injuries. 
right? That's that's yeah. why you do bike volume so that you don't get the overuse injuries in the in the boat. We obviously in that period there were a couple of really big cycling um, incidents, weren't there? I, I wonder if it's slightly overrepresented because of of that that statistic in in terms of the cycling, but nonetheless, it is it's a bit shocking to see that cycling has made such an impact. Yeah, <laughs> in a bad way. Yeah, I think the that data the data about cycling injuries will be skewed a little bit in terms of the number of athlete days that it costs, but not necessarily the incidents and not necessarily the number of cycling accidents that occurred. Yeah. So, out of all of the acute injuries, one in three of them was a cycling accident, and then the um, uh, average time lost was thirty one days, and I think that. 31 days uh, for a cycling injury is definitely skewed by a number of significant injuries in in key athletes as well. So um, not to suggest that any athlete that's selected isn't a key athlete, but we do know that um, we've got some some superstars in the team and mm. when they're injured, that is we can't reflect that in a study like this. No, mm. no. Yeah, really interesting. One, one of the sports I was working with leading into the um, – to the London Games, just made a call, no road biking in the 12 months before the Olympics. Mm. So any cycling that they did was all on the watt bike, which they loved. (laughs) Was that rowing? I think we actually implemented that one. I wasn't rowing. It wasn't rowing. But um, Yeah, well, I mean, I I remember speaking to this one of the Australian track cycling coaches before the Rio Olympics where they were playing around with that as well, doing as much work on the watt bikes as they could because – in that last couple of weeks just for fear of or to ensure against as much as possible having crashes on the track. Now, I don't think they've persisted with it because I think they found that um, and I won't I won't say definitively, but I, I think there was a f- feeling that people lost feel for the mm. for the um, for the track. Um, but it, it's it's a really interesting one. And we, look, we could talk about this for ages because particularly now in young cyclists um, and um, athletes that are cycling with a concussion understanding that we now have understanding that you know if you if you get a suspected concussion you know it's automatically I think two weeks off off um, yeah um, no. competitive training essentially it's much more well executed in contact sports or collision sports but yeah that's a big problem in in cycling yeah it's something to be really mindful of um, Larry. In terms of those other injuries, obviously we talked a, a little bit earlier about the tendon stuff in the in the arm and and wrist, which you know is is one of the other big ones. Is there anything there that you'd you'd like to um, point out? No, probably other than you know that one of the important things about collecting the data is to understand your problem. That was one of the aims of that Van Mecklen principle. And I think that's it's why it's important because if you'd asked me, I would have said it's a standout. It's where we should be targeting some of our thoughts and priorities in terms of injury prevention. But that doesn't actually translate into the data. So it, it's good to be challenging for clinicians uh, to say what do I think is important and why do I think it's important and is that just my personal experience of some standout cases versus yeah. a serial problem. Um, I've I got a categorizational question though about wrist. So um, you have wrist tendon injuries, you have wrist ganglia, that's wrist. What? Well, is it wrist? What's forearm? Is that compartment stuff a lot of the time or is it? Is, does that include intersection? It's a very good question, Mac. And I don't know the answer to that. 
I will take that on notice and provide some feedback. A lot of forum would be compartment syndrome stuff. Compartment syndrome. Um, But I would suspect that it would also, looking at the number of cases and that it costs a little bit more time, be representative of the intersection group as well. And wrist and hand would be um, more the scaphoid fractures or scaphoid fracture and some of the A2 pulley injuries, so finger Mm. uh, injuries that we've seen. So they were definitely a problem at a particular time in the sport and um, there was quite a few of them. So I think the differentiation would be intersection within the forearm. I'd have to look up the exact orchard coding to be able to answer. A few dangerous hand injuries on boat fins and things like that, I think. Yeah, someone someone we know (laughs) sliced their hand open on a fin twice. Vigorous (laughs) boat washing. (laughs) Well done, Mac. Um, What about the knee one, Larry? What what do you know about that? Interesting, if you look at the data that's around in rowing sports medicine literature, knees actually are quite a common injury reported as a common injury it seems to be more common in junior athletes or uh, emerging athletes rather than more senior athletes Mm. Um, and so if you look at uh, adolescent rowing they actually have knee as a higher injury than chest wall uh, pain uh, whereas that's not quite so common in the in the senior athlete cohort so um, again sits as uh, the third uh highest would you say athlete days yep lost patella tracking um, or fat pad or what, what would you say uh in, in terms experience? of an actual pathology yeah. uh patellofemoral either um male tracking or pain syndrome or otherwise chondropathy so mm. which is a hole in the cartilage on the undersurface surface of the kneecap i would argue there's only certain runners that are designed uh, sorry sorry certain <laughs> rowers that are designed to run uh you yourself being part of that group mac but many of your fellow rowers are not ergonomically gifted for running and bills so are late bloomer though <laughs> <laughs> Hello to Aaron from La Sportiva. (laughs) Thanks for the new shoes. I love them. (laughs) Larry, on the knee though as well, um, I always – we often saw um, tendon issues around the underside of the knee when people learn gestia. Um, And I think – so to me that was one and and an area where I think we made some ground in this period of time was obviously we worked really hard with, uh, you know, Ed Wittich and – and the guys from BAT, Paul Francis, around supporting the heel better and making sure that the the contact was optimised for drive performance but also for, for I think, setup within the boat. We did a lot of mechanical analysis of the foot. So I know I was interested around the knee one because I, I think we used to always see a lot of is it semi-membranosis, t- semi-tendinosis, those ones underneath, the, the, the little pulleys underneath the knee when people would be learning to steer for the first time. Um, yeah, or, very yes. good anatomical uh, <laughs> recollection bill. So for He's quite people medical. who aren't medical, uh, the hamstrings, which are the muscles in the posterior thigh, run down the back of the leg and divide behind the knee. Some come to the inside of the tibia, the shin bone, just below the knee. Some go to the outside. The two that Bill's mentioned come to the inside and they essentially get tension on them as the foot twists in and out like you do in the steering motion. So um, you can see some, we call it distal, far away from the body, hamstring 
tendinopathy or tendon problems with steering. And that's definitely part of it, um, particularly if you're steering and compressing those tendons at the catch. Um, so, super yeah, interesting I, biomechanical stuff. That, yeah, oh, it's, it very is. it's very complex. For, for those that aren't rowers, um, the amount of force going directly down through the foot along with the twisting motion, which also requires balance as well, it, it's, it's very... It's very confounding and could be very complicating. Larry, the other one is the hip. You know, we all, through some of that period of time, we had a number of rowers that ended up having, um, you know, I don't know exactly what you call it, but they ended up having parts of their, the capsule of their hips shaved away so that their femur essentially could move through enough range of motion. And there were some, you know, you can explain it better than I did. So um, there was a fair bit though in that period of time, which I don't remember prior to that necessarily being the case. Um, and some of the great coaches as well had that done too. <laughs> it's like tour to injury. Ron, I'm still waiting to hear about your personal medical history as part of this podcast recording. Um, we'll get I, to it. Oh, excellent. I, uh, one of the coaches that we've previously worked with in the Australian uh, team reached out to Kelly and I after the paper was published to ask about specifically about the hip injuries. And Kelly actually replied today, eight hours ago at wow, midday, tiny. with some ideas. So I'm going to just share those directly from her very learned email. Uh, so we had uh, 11 hip injuries across the two Olympic. Yeah, so there's not really enough there to pull out um, too many specifics and to compare between the two Olympiads as well. Um, uh, so the injury that you were describing, Bill, is a, a labral injury. So the, the hips are ball and socket. People can have a bit of a mismatch in the shape between their ball and their socket. And as part of that, they can damage the cartilage that runs in a clock face circle around the socket. Uh, and so the operative intervention for that or the the operation is to do keyhole surgery and stick the labrum, the cartilage, back down to the edge of the socket and to reshape the ball uh, to allow better movement. And there, there were certainly, clinically, we'd observed that there were some uh, significant injuries there that took a long time to settle or required an operation to get better. Uh, but if you look at the comparison in terms of the frequency or the time lost compared to low back pain, for example, it's it's only a really small number of cases. Yeah, I think I mean, this isn't in the paper at all, but I, my experience of, of an athlete is you're always required to row as long as possible, right? So you're always, you're always required to get as much hip flexion as you can to get forward into the catch. Now, the rowers would know that you should probably have your shins at vertical for optimal sort of power application, but a lot of the time you're trying to get out a bit further than that. So you do have to have your hip into full flexion. So quite often you'd be tight and sore and you'd require treatment, but you wouldn't lose any athlete days. But mm. these 11 athletes that are, are noted for hip and groin injuries probably did end up a lot of them did end up with surgery, whereas uh, there would be a lot more rowers that have hip impingement and hip pain but don't end up going down this pathway. Well, and I, I think I also wonder how many of the hip dysfunction or, or the lack of ability to get comfortably through, through your hips into the catch position is a cause or a contributor to lumbar back and mm. thoracic injury. So that, that's part of the reason why I asked the question. 
You're 100% spot on, Bill, and we know that if you don't have 130 degrees of hip flexion that you load the lumbar spine at the catch. So uh, the hip bone is connected to the backbone essentially and (laughs) what affects one uh, area definitely flows on. So one of the big changes that we made in terms of uh, the time that Kelly and I were working in rowing was to look at trying to increase male hip mobility every day with some uh, stretches that then reduced uh, the incidence of low back pain in that particular cohort. So um, that those two stretches are actually, we've got a great photo of Kerry doing them on the Growing yeah. Body website. So if people wanted to trawl through our previous blog posts, there's not too much current there at the moment, unfortunately, but those two stretches are there and, and absolutely right. I think if we can keep rowers' hips moving well, they're less likely to load up their back. Make sure the growing bodies is is linked there as well on uh, on our socials, gang. I've got I've got a question, Larry, and you know, I might not be analysing this right, but looking at the graph that you've got here, in um, particularly in the male rowers, the the lumbar incidents and the chest injury incidents almost mirror one another. So as the lumbar injuries go down, the chest injuries go up over time. Why do you think that might be? I think, well, we know that um, bony chest wall injuries are overuse injuries, so there's a load component associated with that. Uh, So maybe if you're missing less days from your low back pain, that you're doing more work and potentially then uh, you're getting other, potentially other injuries. You're looking Mm. at the longitudinal uh, Mm. comparison. Yeah, yeah. Matt. And what what didn't seem to be the same case for the for the females, but yeah, that just sort of stood out to me. I'm not sure that it's statistically significant. Would be yeah, would I wondered be that person, looking at it. I actually wondered for a while when we reduced injury uh, in different groups within the team, and we saw that illness went up, and I wondered whether actually doing more work put people closer to that that line point that you were talking about before, Bill, and mm. we were saying illness as a result rather than injury. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was like Kelly was doing great and I was looking terrible when we did our <laughs> team presentation. Yeah, so I guess another question I've got around the injury stuff is the uh, there's a, you know, a clear difference in male and female injury patterns. Um, you know, we've gone through potentially why some of those things are, but, you know, it really highlights the requirement for individualised preparation so I guess from a, a potential protective point of view, are there any sort of screening tools, training methodologies, any sort of practical recommendations that might come out of that sort of stuff? Yeah, I think the education of athletes around where the susceptibility lies and the specific risk factors for them as a group. Um, so if we're talking chest wall pain, we're looking at energy sufficiency Uh, We're looking at hormonal profile in females in particular. We're looking at sun exposure, all those things that you need to build strong, healthy bones. Mm. If we're educating males around the importance of hip mobility, we're not just saying do these stretches, they're good for you. We're saying we believe that by maintaining your hip range of motion, you're going to load your spine less, which means you're less likely to develop an injury. And we know once you've got low back pain, the biggest predictor of a second episode is the first episode. Mm. By trying to specifically educate athletes around why we're doing these targeted interventions to to the injury they're most vulnerable to, I think it's really powerful. 
Brilliant. Anything else on the injury front? I mean, I, I feel like honestly we could talk about this all night. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much to discuss here, but um, I've got lots of questions, but perhaps I can we can save those until the sort of the practical applications at the end. Sure. I think the one thing we probably do need to talk about, which I was a little bit reluctant to talk about up front, because I think it's the part of the paper that we could talk the most about, but which has the least data behind it, is about the difference we saw in the incidence of low back pain between the two Olympiads. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a few factors, but some yeah, compounding so, things probably. Yeah, okay. So, Larry, you've brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, we... Um, we looked, because we're in this unique position of having two um, different Olympiads, there were some things that were different between the two cycles. Um, there are a lot of things that we didn't look at that were different, um, that we knew were different but no one had recorded and we didn't have a, uh, a measure of, so we weren't able to analyse those. But one of the things we looked at with interest after the call from a couple of great international rowing authors, sports medicine authors, about the role of ergometer rowing in injury was there was actually quite a difference uh, in how rowing ergometer testing and training were completed in Australia between the London and the Rio Olympiad. So we took a look at the injuries and said, hey, were they different between the two cycles um, and could we attribute that or well, not attribute, that's not the right word, might there be some uh, connection between the difference in ergo testing and training and the incident rate of incidence of injury. And what we found was that in the London Olympiad, there was actually uh, a lower incidence and a lower burden or a lower number of athlete days lost to low back pain in comparison to the Rio Olympiad. And so we asked the question, could that be in some way contributed to by the difference in ergo? Mm. Yeah. And so, and, and I think the, the uh, big matzo ball that we haven't spoken about there though, is that the, the philosophy for testing in the um, London cycle leading into 2012 was that the testing was done on um, on the dynamic ergo. It was actually done on the Concept 2 with sliders. Not It wasn't done on the row perfect and it wasn't done on the Concept 2 dynamic ergo, but the regular ergo on sliders. And then in the 2016 cycle, it was shifted to back on the deck. Um, and... And the shift was driven probably out of um, initially into using sliders was, I, as I recall it, a, a push towards trying to have a safer way of doing ergo training. So whether there was data behind it or not, I think there was a suspicion in, in and around 2008 that um, we were seeing too many injuries as a result of stationary ergos and we're trying to find a way to mitigate the um, the risk by going into a dynamic ergo. And the ergo on sliders is the same unit, but it's sitting on um, sliders that are on elastic bands, so they go backwards and forwards. And so each stroke you take isn't against a fixed seat. It's it's dynamic. And so usually rowers would rate a couple of points higher. Yeah. So the wattage might be the same, but you're actually probably taking putting in down less watts per stroke to achieve the same wattage. And there was a, there's a change in the force profile as well, so yeah, you, yeah. you absolutely notice that there's less um, force at the catch. At the catch, yeah. 
um, and it's more, uh, which, which I guess you could be hypothesised is a is the position anatomically where the the lumbar spine and thoracic spine might be less protected. I, I don't know. I'm not an expert, but that's what that's what we intuitively would have thought. The interesting one, Larry, and I, I'll um, this is my personal view. I hated the slider ergos because people <laughs> rode appallingly <laughs> afterwards, and I remember. You know, all you lost most of your hair. <laughs> all the dirty cycle. laundry out there. We had coaches from overseas in 2011 saying, "What's happened to the Australian rowers? You used to row beautifully, and now you all row terribly." Yeah, you pop the knees and yeah, you, know, you pull the knees and, down the and side. you. And we used to do at the VAS. We used to do ergo training on a Tuesday night. Was our big um, main ergo set. And Wednesday was when we'd go to the 2K rowing course here to do our measured work. And I think it was a number of years of just watching people spend a whole <laughs> session trying to learn how to row again after the sliders. We had great backs. Yeah. But the interesting thing was uh, after that, like in 2012, I gave it away. So we did all our testing with the girls, pairs and the sweep rowers, heavyweight sweep women on, on stationary ergo after that because I couldn't look at couldn't look at them rowing poorly like that anymore but it's fascinating it's it's a fascinating um uh link that you know potentially could be there that um you know that 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 load on the stationary ergo um you know there's something there's something to be seen there potentially i think that's exactly how i would describe it bill there's something to be looked at in more detail in a properly designed study that is looking for a, to, to provide the answer to the question. Yeah. Is it, is there a difference in the injury rate? We also looked at the rate of chest wall pain and we actually really dug down into the stats and looked, was there a difference in the rib stress fracture rate uh, between the two Olympiads? And we didn't see it transpire to be different uh, yeah. in those areas. So I think it's really just a, a clue. And actually as a clinician, I'd probably go to where you were heading before, I think, Rod, which is could we use it as a tool to individualise training in certain athletes at certain times because of their risk profile? Mm. Uh, and do we need to think of it as just another tool in the toolbox to be able to um, prevent injury in some athletes? Can we use it as a rehabilitation tool in other athletes? But it's super important it, that we're working not just in our little sports medicine bubble, but we're working with coaches and we're working with athletes uh, to try and understand what everyone's trying to achieve and what's in the athlete's best interest in terms of getting the performance that they are aiming for. And coming into the team in 2014, when I came into the team, so once they made the move back to stationary sliders, what you said at the end there was probably my experience in that it was used in a targeted way. Generally, somebody, you know, maybe they've got a little bit of a back niggle or they're returning from a back injury. That's when we use the sliders as opposed to all the time. And I remember discussing, Bill, with you at one point, you felt that there was potentially a, a physiological cost as well, perhaps to moving to the sliders. So, you know, obviously we use the ergo as a sort of a really key physiological tool. And, and you know, we, we often found that you know, because less of a technical element, you don't have to balance the boat, you don't have to row in time with somebody else, etc. You could always get 
we could get a stronger physiological signal on the ergo than, than we generally could on the water. Um, so did you find that there was, and we're going a bit off track from injury, but did you find that there was sort of a physiological cost potentially from that? And I guess, Mac, I'd be interested to hear your take as well because, you know, because of what you said before, we might see on an ergo test your power would actually be increased. Um, but that was perhaps artificially. So, yeah, did you guys probably think there was an, a physiological cost to moving to sliders? I think that's one of the reasons why we we went back to using the stationary ergo was we felt like um, it it wasn't the same as rowing, but it was it was definitely providing us a, a the signal that we wanted to achieve out of that training session. And I guess that's part of the it's part of the the way you approach ergos. I, I remember talking to actually Alice's sister Stella who is a pretty good runner um, and we're talking about doing some testing on some track and field athletes biomechanically and trying to figure out we could, could we do it on a treadmill and her view was well it's nothing like running it's not the same you know why would any runner want to run on a treadmill um, and which is a fair point but I would say no rower would ever say that the ergo is like rowing doesn't feel anything like rowing but you're trying to achieve a, that that added load, that extra time and attention. I felt was a slightly different signal to rowing. Otherwise, why wouldn't we just go rowing? You know, we, we wanted to change the signal slightly to increase the time and attention. I suppose to add a bit of load so that they would adapt in a slightly different way to just the same session done on the water. Whereas I I feel like the dynamic ergo enabled people just to zip along in a, in a rhythm that was maybe a bit more similar to what they were doing when they were rowing. So if that's what you wanted to get out of that session, perfect, but it probably wasn't what we were trying to get out of those sessions. Yeah, well, so I guess then coming back to specificity of and individualising the tools that you might use is that, you know, I was obviously in a lightweight female rowing category and I think probably we found the sliders much more similar to how you would swing along in the boat. Um, not to say that we don't row with power in the boat because we certainly do, but certainly I'm not putting down the same amount of watts as one of the heavyweight males are. And I would find that, you know, your rating would come a bit more easily, you'd rate a bit higher and Mm. it really did replicate what you were going to do in a big race. You weren't going to be sitting at 30, 32 for sure. a 2k you were going to be up at 38 and that's probably much more accurate I as think, to what it would be under pressure i think that's my point though if that's what you're trying to get out of the session brilliant but if you're trying to get out of the session to do something that's slightly different so there's a bit of variety in what you're doing compared to what you're just doing on the water mm. which was why we did the ergo so it's it's totally mm. related you, to what you're specifically trying to get out of that session yeah. and i think that's why we went back to doing them on the deck and i'll put you um, on the spot here, you may not be able to answer this, but do you uh, did you do your lab testing on the um, sliders as well? In that cycle, yeah, yeah we did. Yeah, hmm. yeah. And did you notice a difference in the lab testing? You know, probably again, probably some of the power numbers might have been higher because of what you said before. But things, some of the physiological markers, we didn't really. I notice. had. I, I actually think that there were some pretty pretty good physiological markers during the sliders period but it was it would have been different in different categories but certainly the numbers that came out in the lightweight categories were really good um, I think it was more specific tool but that that's a very subjective comment and I think 
part of we've come right off the, the study here, whereby we had a very good objective data. And it just so happened that during the eight years that this data was collected, Rowing Australia had two different forms of ergo. And I think if you were trying to keep it uniform throughout the whole cycle, you would have one different ergo. But that was what that was a structure within this study. The one thing I will say, Rodney, is it was a lot easier to do the tests because you could just stand there with a hose and you didn't have to swing up and down as the people were moving. So <laughs> yeah. you, you blokes, you Scientologists found it a lot easier. Uh, all right, well, we can get back to the study, but um, maybe I'll delve into the VIS um, sports science lab testing databases when I get off this call. No! Enjoy that, mate. <laughs> Enjoy it. <laughs> I would say if we were talking about ergo and injury prevention, just to finish the loop, that the best uh, injury prevention to do with ergos is actually being coached on the ergo, in my opinion. Ah, so bang. I think if you want to prevent injuries uh, and you're thinking about the ergo, that correctly rowing on the ergo is the most important part and therefore being coached on the ergo is a really important part of that particularly for junior athletes but i think it goes for almost all Larry, athletes. that is a great message to send to to wrap up that section on injury well done very very well done all right so we've talked about um the injuries but we we can't forget the uh the poorer cousin illnesses as you said larry before they they sit level on the on the pedestal and and really some fascinating um i guess light shone on the contribution the negative contribution that il illness can have on um on a campaign the derailing capabilities and and potentially why it might you know have have even more complications than an injury at times so and particularly now going forward well yeah everyone's aware of it now but um tell us a little bit about what you saw and then we can have a chat around what what we think it might mean so we had 128 individual cases of illness recorded in the study period and that was actually the highest presentation. So th there were more illnesses than there were low back pain, there was more illnesses than there were chest wall pain incidents. So really common presentation to the sports med team um, that represents about a third um and for an, the average time loss for any episode of illness was 4.7 days. So while you might think, oh, it's just, I've just got a cold, I'll miss a day of training. Actually, when we looked at the data that we'd collected, it would take an athlete almost five days to get back to full training mm. when they did have an illness. And I think we touched on it briefly before. There's a really good prospective paper that followed the Irish rowers for 12 months that showed that if you were injured, you were more likely to do more training than those than your colleagues who were uh, training on the water. Whereas I think when we're ill, most people do very minimal training and that's often what we prescribe as sports mm. med doctors. And so if you've got, if you're missing five days of training uh, here and there with an illness, that's actually quite a lot when you add it up. Yeah. And I think it's really an under-recognised burden, not only from the athlete and coach perspective, but also from the doctor's perspective. We don't look at the frequency of illness. And, and one of the things we found is there's some athletes that get sick multiple times and some athletes that never get sick. Um, you'd know that from the time in the team. And for those athletes that are frequently unwell, the, their lost training time actually adds up without us really appreciating. They haven't had a big back injury or a rib injury, but somehow they've already lost 20 days for the season. I've got a question for Rodney. So just say you had five days of time of very minimal training because you had an illness. 
So how long do you think it takes an athlete to sort of build back to where they were before they got sick? Well, I mean, that's a really hard one to answer. It depends how much you, you lose. Um, you know, we do deload in training naturally anyway, deload weeks, tapers, things of that nature. But usually it's, a, you know, it's not a next to going back to next to nothing. So, you know, five days, you know, it shouldn't take too long, but if that's going to be a consistent sort of thing, um, throughout the season, then it, then it kind of adds up. Um, but you know, then there's all other sorts of things, especially in the sport of rowing that you have to take into account. So, um, you know, technical things, but probably a, a big one I'd imagine it'd be, you know, you're out of the boat and you're in a crew boat. What happens then? Somebody's yeah. got to step in for you. Um, so yeah, I mean the physiological cost for, you know, for five days, I don't think is probably that great. Um, but I guess the additional cost of that is that you've gotten sick too. So that's taking you back you know, further again and how long it takes you to build back up mm. while you're you know, getting back to 100% from that illness, even though you, maybe you can train. So yeah. there's a few things there to consider. Yeah, you might be able to train, to but are you actually getting much from the training if your body's still trying to get itself back to um, into 100% shape? Or, you know, really yeah, to exactly. And I, I remember, you know, specifically working with, with, you know, Bill and Larry in, in 2015 around an athlete who was sick for some time and we, we had measures of her heart rate variability and it just did not come back up to normal for what felt like maybe almost a couple of months. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that she was really getting a lot out of the training. She was turning up, giving it her all every single day, but I'm not sure she was progressing until, you know, we saw those things sort of come but i think at the end up sort of putting her on maybe some antibiotics or something and she came back good and hrv came back to normal and then she actually started taking off a little bit physically and, and things like that too i guess that's the hard one with illness isn't it larry because uh, and you should we should talk about what the specific illnesses are or the key the key um uh, culprits but m many of them unlike a a, a mechanical injury where they can be more predictable. Like an illness can often drag on for quite some time depending on how a person's immune system is set up and, and ready to, to help, you know, join in the fight to, to get over it. I think actually that's a really good point, Bill, that it's almost harder to predict. So if I see an athlete and I know they have a rib injury, then I can say I'm pretty confident that with this type of injury it's going to, you're going to need two weeks break from on-water training. We'll build you back up over two weeks and I'll be confident that you're right to go. If I'd see an individual athlete with an upper respiratory tract infection, known as the common cold, uh, it's really difficult to know which virus that is, uh, how long it's going to last, and that's going to be really influenced by not only what the bug is but who the athlete is and where they're up to and all the other things that influence their general state of well-being. So... Illness is pretty complicated. The two that we saw the most of were upper respiratory tract infections and gastroenteritis, uh, infectious gastro uh, within the cohort. We actually hope that eventually we might analyse that data a little bit further and be able to provide another paper just looking at the, the different susceptibilities and illnesses that do present in rowers. So I won't talk too much more about that. But one thing I would say is um, uh, we did have a really statistically significant increase in our illness presentations in 2016, so in the Olympic year. Uh, 
and I'd be interested if uh, anything jumps out to you guys that was different in that time in rowing that may be attributable. Again, it's a little bit like the low back pain findings. Lots of things are different year to year. Was there something different that stood out about well, 2016? The, the obvious the obvious thing, well, there's two, there's two things. Number one, it's the Olympic year. So there's a lot of added stress and strain that comes in around that and potentially more activities as a result. But I guess the obvious change that we did do as a system that year was one, uh, bearing in mind that this is just once you're selected and until the benchmark adventure, which was the Rio Olympics, once that the team was selected, it was all relocated to one place for the whole duration of the, um, the campaign. And a lot of that time was actually in Canberra where potentially, um, you know, I know at that time of the year where it starts to get cold and dry, people can, you know, having trained there, you know, you are a bit more susceptible potentially if you're not used to it to some of those respiratory-based injury uh, illnesses just because you, you know, your lungs are dry or whatever it is. You know, you just have that feeling where you, everything seems to irritate you for a little bit and maybe if people hadn't adapted to that, maybe that was a contributor. I, I don't know, but that, that stands out a little bit to me. Plus, I suppose, as we're all aware of this now, but, you know, if you're in a pair and you can isolate away with three people and you coach, you know, as long as none of the three of you get sick, you're right. But if you're in a group 100%. of 50, mm. a team of 50 or 60, you're constantly Living thinking, in close God. confines is probably your biggest risk factor, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we... Yeah, it was named as Destination Gold Camp, but we renamed it Destination Cold Camp, not mm. because of the climatic conditions, but because of the spike in illnesses that we saw, the perfect storm. So we know that uh, viral respiratory illnesses are peaking in autumn, uh, coming into winter. That's when the team was gathered in a relatively cooling environment from multiple different areas into the one spot to live and train in a communal space. And we certainly didn't have the awareness then that is part of our everyday lives at the moment in yeah. terms of mm. virus transmission, the importance of hand washing, respiratory hygiene, all of those sorts of mm. things. So the, the, there was definitely a difference statistically between 2016 and the other years. And for me, it does fit really well with um, the communal type living arrangement when people weren't used to that, that's a really important point. So if you've come out of a training centre and you go back to the same training centre, you're used to those people and those bugs. Um, but when you gather groups of people who have been in different environments and bring them all together, there's definitely a risk factor there. Yeah, and it's 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 not just the people, it's also the environment. Like it's also that time of the year with pollen and, and you know, change of change of seasons there's a whole lot of stuff that's happening in the atmosphere that can contribute to um, people you only have to get a tiny bit of hay fever for it to trigger in some athletes to trigger yeah but if you look at the number one and two causes if it's upper respiratory tract infections and gastro they're all caught yeah from person to person yeah yeah well Well, that's right and and i've always i thought through this the pandemic that we've lived through that we've been relatively well served because we've had hygiene drilled into us for 15 years or more around hand hygiene and that sort of stuff but i guess the the fact is that if if it's if it's present it's it no matter how much you attend to hygiene it's very hard to um you have to be diligent so and lucky so vigilant as well yeah question for you larry um you know factors that increase someone's susceptibility to respiratory tract infections may be Load-based, overtraining, fatigue, those general things. Does it, that come into this data collection or is it captured when someone presents with an upper, upper respiratory tract infection? 
So Mac, that would be the perfect place to have some load data to support or marry with our injury and illness information that we have and it'd be fantastic to look. I think the utopia would be, you know, we can see someone and we see their load and we see them getting up and we see a recurrent uh, pattern where we see this particular finding and then subsequent respiratory illness off the back of it, that might give us an idea, but maybe yeah. I haven't quite got your question. No, no, I think that's right. I think you cap you will capture this when someone presents unwell and are unable to train for that 24-hour period, um, whether that's um, athlete-reported illness um, because they're so run down, they just cannot get themselves up, which is very rare in this group. Usually you battle through unless you're actually unwell. Yeah. Uh, but I think that, you know, if you've been working in an endurance sport for a while, you're going to see athletes that are just flat some days. Um, and if they're, yeah, just have the data collected. So if some, if this is an illness presentation, then it has to have a diagnosis behind it, I guess. But uh, within the medical illness diagnoses within the orchard classification, there is an overtraining, overreaching diagnosis. So mm. uh, we do have a way of capturing people who we think have a pathological problem mm. instead of a physiological problem. So we know that. Was this common? Did you say that much? Um, there was a couple of significant uh, cases of overreaching within the data set that fall within the illness statistics. Okay. So two, two cases really jump out for me where we had athletes who were um, uh, a little bit burnt out and required some unloading to be able to benefit further from their training. Yeah, so that was my question. So that was a, a captured category, but it didn't fall in your top couple. Uh, but it doesn't fall in my top couple. No, I'd say I, I think your observation's correct. It's quite unusual in rowers, in my experience, to see that as opposed to um, maybe some more running-based athletes uh, in athletics, triathlon, those sorts of sports. Maybe overtrainings uh, I've seen more commonly in those athletes than I have in the rowers, and I've worked with a lot more rowers. Mm, that's interesting. Because on hours, rowing, rowers do yeah, but training. I guess it's – and look, there's a whole different discussion, but it's just, you know, there's a whole lot of um, – there's a whole difference, isn't there, around sports where you're smashing your foot against the ground and, and, and the impact of that versus sitting down and, and, and punching along for a long period of time. I guess it's it has, it has some kind of impact. I think individual sports are actually – also require a lot of – Mental resilience. Like if you've got a crew that you're doing 30 hours of training a week for, how many Josh was doing 40 hours a week of training, collaboration, it's much more mentally stimulating to go along as well. I think if you were an individual athlete training by yourself in triathlon, it would actually be quite easy to burn yourself out. But the collegiate crew environment is actually, you can get a lot more work done. Uh, Mind and body, body and mind. It's very interesting how it all combines. Yeah, absolutely. So I've just got a practical question, I guess. So reading the paper, it obviously jumps out that illness is an unappreciated burden, as you sort of say in the paper. And rowing is, it's a unique sport where the mechanical load is really, really high and hence all the injuries that we see. But the physiological load is also really high, uh, which can predispose you to, to illness. Um, and so I always found it strange that we probably talk about the illness side of things a fair bit less than we do the injury side of things. So having the numbers on it, I think is really useful because it illuminates actually, you know, how much of a, a burden it can be on the training process. So at a practical level, what do you think that 
this data actually means. So how can we use this data, um, you know, from a prevention point of view, you know, if that's even possible, or from a recovery point of view in terms of coming back from illness, readiness to recommence and train hard and so on and so forth. The things I'd pull out, uh, Rod, would be individual athlete uh, programs again. So looking at athletes, do they have a particular susceptibility, actually tracking their illness. So do they get sick at the same time every year and then trying to pull that apart? So is that a, and Bill, you mentioned this in terms of Canberra. So do they have a hay fever predisposition? And we know that if you get a bout of hay fever, you actually disrupt your respiratory epithelium, which is your barrier to bugs then coming in. So you're more likely to get an upper respiratory tract infection. So if you can then prevent that hay fever episode, can you prevent the subsequent illness that happens at the same time each year. Uh, so I'd be looking at it in terms of customising it for the individual athlete mm-hmm. and helping them to recognise whether they're someone that gets sick or doesn't get sick and what their contributing factors might be. Do they always get sick off the back of exams and miss a training block when they're on their uni holidays because they – and could we help them manage themselves better through the uni exam process so that they get – a better block of training after that. Um, so understanding the individual athletes super important. I've always had this interest in rowers' hands. So we're really conscious at the moment around hand washing. We, we recognise that as a risk mitigation strategy and I think it makes it hard to wash your hands effectively if they're covered in callus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or if they've got splits and, and, you know, we did some education throughout my time in the sport using the same uh, glitter hand wash that we used in the operating room to learn to wash our hands effectively. And you always see that glitter, uh, which you look at with a UV light so you can't see it while you're actually washing your hands, that glitter sticks to callus. Yeah, so I was going to mention that, Larry. I make the same uh, inference that potentially the bugs also stick to the calluses, so... That's just a point of interest for me, specific to rowing and illness. Uh, on the other side of that, Larry, I've always felt that rowing on the Yarra River every day of my formative <laughs> career has pre- has helped prevent me picking up many of the bugs, and I'm yeah. convinced that I'm COVID uh, protected because of it. <laughs> Your immune system my is immune, well trained. I have trained. a hyper immune system. <laughs> I, uh, we won't talk too much about COVID because I'm not an expert in it, but I'd suggest that hopefully it's... Um, so it's okay, Larry. No one's an expert in it. <laughs> no, if you want, if you want expert um, information on COVID, just go to Facebook. Plenty on there. <laughs> but what, what that does um, throw context to, Larry, is how many upper respiratory tract infections are common in a team environment. And now that there is a significant upper respiratory tract infection, which is high risk of transmission and needs isolating, that's very disruptive. So if you can prevent any common colds being spread around, you don't have to chase down COVID as well. So, I mean, that's what the current clinicians are really battling with at the moment. Yeah. And look, I think looking forward as well, um, I wonder how this this whole thing will change our attitude towards this. I think you wouldn't want, you, you wouldn't want to get a cold once we're back to normal training in six months' time, whenever that is, you wouldn't want to get a cold in a team environment because you're going to get excluded now. Mm-hmm. And that's that's going to be the automatic thing. They're going to isolate you, put you away. So you actually... Put you away. Yeah, well, you, 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 you don't... You, you're going to want to take extra measures to make sure you don't get a cough and a sniffle because it's, it's going to prevent you from doing the training that you want to do because we're not going to take the risk of having you in the, in the squad environment. Larry, I had a question for you around illness. Um, travel 
Um, can you talk a bit about the seasons that involved a lot of travel versus less travel and whether that was relevant? Mm, I haven't thought about it in those terms, Mac. I, uh, it's a great question um, because I do recognise I think travel can be a risk factor for illness in susceptible people. Mm. It's a stressful time. There's presentation to bugs that are unusual. There's lots of time when you interact with the public. Um, and would you observe in your experience of the travel across the eight seasons, we didn't notice a statistical difference in the seasons right. other than 2016, but I would consider, I do consider travel a risky time for illness. That was one of the great things about our bump into Rio that I was really delighted with is that we didn't have anyone who developed a respiratory tract infection off the back of travel. Yeah, so you were anticipating that. Um, So I I would always think that those uh, few days after travel are a high-risk time, often because from Australia we travel internationally, which is long haul, which Mm. is very fatiguing and there's a lot of bugs between uh, us and Verese. So um, definitely I clinically I recognise it as a risk factor but it hasn't come out in the numbers I don't think. Yeah, okay, that's good. I mean I was looking, I was ask, asking if there, it did come out the numbers. My my gut feeling was that maybe if you had a, a two-part season where you might travel from Canberra to Europe over, so you go from winter to summer and then you have to come back to Canberra I always felt like that's when people got sick when you come from summer and plunge yourself into winter for another block before you might go overseas again. But but maybe in the grand context that wasn't significant. But, yeah, definitely. If you were anticipating the travel going into Rio, to me that sounds like you had observed it as being a potential spike. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, we, we don't have enough observations to be able to recognise some of the subtle things that are really important for performance but don't make statistical significance in a, in a research paper. Mm, yeah, cool. Larry, did you get a sense at all around injury or illness if there were some athletes that were more or less susceptible to those things, you know, you know based, based on maybe age or training age or, you know, number of teams made um, experience level, performance level, et cetera, or, or was it really kind of across the board? It's a great question, Rod, and unfortunately we didn't drill down into the uh, the individual cases at that level, so we looked really broadly. So I, I can't say on the basis of the analysis that we did. My experience in the team is that some athletes are incredibly injury and illness resilient so that they just don't get sick and they just don't get injured. Uh, they're, they're a very rare and important breed, but there are some athletes where we would predict uh, the need to monitor the athlete more closely maybe as they, they, particularly someone stepping into the training environment who hasn't trained at that level before. They're definitely someone I'm keeping an eye on clinically from an injury and illness perspective. Someone changing training programs, so just whether the program's going to be different, have different components, um, is someone else that I'm watching from an injury perspective. Um, someone changing environments is someone I'm watching from an illness perspective. So I think anytime there's a change, there's the need to be vigilant. Uh, we didn't look at individual susceptibility because we didn't have individual load. And I think that's that's really where things are headed, hopefully in this space, is to be able to answer that question, uh, why are some athletes more susceptible to injury and illness or why are some athletes more resilient? And what are those characteristics and how do we uh, emphasise them in terms of being resilient? Yeah, great. Yeah, I guess some of them are just cyborgs, eh? 
That's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, no doubt um, the, the opportunity for further exploration in this is, is pretty significant now that we've got a strong grounding. We might um, leave the illness there and uh, take a short break and come back with our wrap-up um, takeaways. Rodney, key takeaway. For me, it's probably not so much a takeaway. Things like this always raise more questions, which I think is really cool. Um, the thing that it probably leaves me wondering first and foremost when you, you know, while we're doing some of this initial steps is to eventually get to the, the step of, well, how does this impact performance? So I'm probably asking the unanswerable question with regards to, it's probably more, you know, what are your guys' gut sense on how much some of this stuff actually impacts performance? Larry, is that a question? Oh, I was going to throw that to Bill because Bill and Mac would be the performance people. I think that it entirely depends on the situation and the athlete because you can have an injury that is absorbed well within a crew. You've got a great reserve, steps into the boat. We cross-train the injured athlete. Physiologically, they don't miss a beat. Uh, the vibe within the crew is very supportive. Everyone's comfortable that things are going to settle down. Uh, the coach is accepting and understanding of the situation. You work together as a team to have the athlete back in the boat and not really too much happens from a performance perspective. In some cases, it may even offer opportunities that weren't considered earlier and so it might be a benefit. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. Well said. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head, Larry. I think I think that it's a bit about that discussion earlier around the five days off. Um, if you've got a rib um, sign, it having having this well attended to from a performance point of view, the the biggest impact is that people keep the faith, and mm. you know, there's there's. You know, we, we can look at um, campaigns. You know, that the the most significant is probably the men's pair in two thousand and eight, where a well-managed in significant injury didn't derail a, a campaign because they had lots of faith in the way it was being managed. So I think mm -hmm. that's why, you know, understanding this and doing this very well is is really critical. Yeah, my... and I actually have one specific example that Kelly was very – Kelly Wilkie was very involved with was a, a rib stress fracture in a crew that I was training in and the rib stress fracture kept one athlete from doing a standing start – up until you know the day of the heat at the world championships Be and that was just part of you know, kept the faith in the crew had reserves in the boat all the way through cross trained this athlete all the way through um put her in the boat right before the world championships she'd done some rowing but you know we, we won we won the worlds that year but that was based on purely expectation and confidence management by the medical staff and the coach yeah so i think that's that's where the the performance impact is in people having faith and confidence and confidence is everything mm. in in a performing athlete i think or a performing team yeah. well and yeah and a good plan and, and management around that really well said guys all right dr mac key takeaway oh just a brilliant data set i mean when you look at the number of athletes that were that were captured over that many athlete days um absolutely fantastic and for any clinician that's ever hoping to work in rowing or well, this is your bible um so yeah i think it's an exceptional piece of work so thank you larry and team yeah mine would be mine would be fairly similar i, I feel I'm, I'm 
so excited to imagine where this could actually take our sport but also the implications of of these kind of studies across some other domains that that i look at where we can actually get really clean data and uh, have people committed to keeping that data clean and accurate so that we can make proper assessments on it and that, that's the thing that really stood out to me in this and it's probably hard for for the lay person to appreciate but how many lines of data did we say Larry? was it 48,000 did you say that's the number of athlete days yeah. um so 48,000 athlete days so we followed that group for that amount of time I mean it's um, just an exceptional we- amount of data to have to keep clean and accurate and I think having that much data to make uh, assessments off gives us so much confidence that we we know stuff rather than we we you know we're, we're not on solid ground. All right, Larry, your key takeaway. Um, my key takeaway would be I'm excited to be doing more in this space and. Uh, just for people who are really interested in rowing injury prevention and understanding more, Kelly and I are part of a consensus group internationally looking at prevention and reduction of low back pain in rowers. And we've got a series of papers coming out, both academic, like we've talked about tonight, but also a care pathway that will be relevant to athletes and coaches. So we're hoping to be able to do more in this space. So moving through that injury prevention model with done some analysis to understand our problem we understand one of our problems is low back pain and now we're trying to address that uh with a great group of rowing clinicians from around the world so i hope that we'll be able to share that on dr goose at some stage in the future fabulous well larry it's been an absolute pleasure it's been a mammoth task actually trying to get through all of this thank you so much for making the time and doc and doc as well uh tune in in the next couple of weeks we've got a couple more athlete investigations coming up as well as a few more um, discussions around some uh of the topics we've been covering off otherwise follow us on the socials and we'll be back with you in the near future